be advised, Blue Rose Task Force is filled with secrets and spoilers. Welcome to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, where we look deeply into Twin Peaks as a whole, one episode at a time, using the full scope of the show Twin Peaks and all its official media. We don't use the word canon, but we consider all official releases important because Lynch and Frost have approved their presence. And we welcome all input into the collective consciousness that is the Twin Peaks community and wider universe. This podcast is a watch-along podcast for those who've seen all of Twin Peaks, including the third season, which we will consider as we go along. Today, we are looking at the 28th overall episode of Twin Peaks, episode 27, often known, depending where you look, as season 2, episode 20, episode 28, or what the German regionalization team named The Path to the Black Lodge. I'm your host, John. In episode 27, Earl's last chess-related victim is removed from the gazebo. Ben is warned away from Doc Hayward's family during a checkup. John Justice Wheeler leaves town urgently in the slowest way possible. Donna finds her suspicious birth certificate in the attic. And Earl's potential queens get be careful speech from Cooper. Bobby apologizes to Shelley. Catherine and Andrew crack puzzle box level two. A lot of right hands shake. Ben and Pete might see Josie. And Audrey tracks down John Justice Wheeler at his plane and removes her virginity. Video footage of Earl from the 1960s enlightens Briggs and the lawman's investigation, and Earl abducts Briggs to get further clarification, but Cooper wanders from the plot in favor of Annie, and misses a warning from the giant, nor does he know that Bob is pushing through the portal in Glastonbury Grove. And how am I going to go about looking at this episode? Well, uh, what questions are we left with? We have... How does Lodge Space become explicitly connected to the physical world? How do Cooper and Earl get closer to understanding the other's plans? How do characters break through their impasse to embrace personal accountability? And is there a possibility that love is not enough? So before we can look into the episode and analyze it properly, we're going to look at the background details that we know about. And... um yeah, at the um, how it was, uh, you know, how everybody was doing when it was being made in the first place. Um, so episode 27 was written by Robert Engels and Harley Payton and directed by Stephen Gyllenhaal. This episode was likely filmed entirely after the hiatus was put in place that stopped the show in the middle of February. Um, you know, no one on the crew... And no one in the, in, none of the actors probably had any idea if this episode would actually air or not, which, you know, you'd think would come out more in the performances like last episode. But, um, you know, besides 
besides Fen not really putting her all into the scene with Billy Zane, um, it was, you know, I mean, and, and, you know, with, with Fen, um, it's this lackluster forced romance, according to her, especially. So, you know, I could see her not being able to sell that scene, um, to the best of her ability, no matter whether this show was, you know, still, uh, still airing on television or not, you know, but I don't think, I don't think that had anything to do with cancellation worries. And, um, you know, you, you'd think that, um, you know, cancellation worries would come out a little bit more in the show, but, um, you know, what ends up happening is Gyllenhaal ends up becoming my favorite non-Lynch director of a Peaks episode. I mean, you know, Todd Holland and Leslie Lincoln Gladder and, you know, Tim Hunter, they all get really, really close and I love them, obviously, but, um, Gyllenhaal seemed to understand how to film the mood and he had an interesting approach. Uh, Kenneth Welsh talked about it and said that, in, in Essential Wrapped in Plastic, he said, Steve's creativity was in how he seemingly hadn't thought of anything until he was actually doing it. I believe he did a hell of a lot of homework, but he made it look like he was inventing on the spot. And this approach of Gyllenhaal seemed to have uh, begun as early as his first time checking out the sets when he talked, he kind of he faked out Frost and Engels, honestly. Um, Engels told a story to Essential Wrapped in Plastic where uh, Mark Frost came up to him and said, do you know what he's doing? He's walking around. What is he doing? Um, we worried he wasn't doing anything. So I went down to ask Steve what he was doing. He was walking around the set and he had a little pocket notebook. He was flipping it open and he was just drawing stick people. The The script was in his head and he was doing the shots. He was doing great prep. And once I saw that, I didn't need to ask him anything. And coming in under adverse circumstances, um, really late in the game, he gets the tone incredibly correct. You know, whether it's the... Uh, the end sequence of all the locations with the slow push in down like empty hallways, you know, plus Bob pushing through the Glastonbury Grove uh, portal. Um, or, you know, how, how about the, the uh, you know, the amazing opening sequence with the different depths of mood all right there, um, you know, working together with each other. You know, first of all, we got Rusty's face being rocked back and forth till the chess piece is tipped over so it can go sideways. And then it's carried out by a team of deputies. You know, they make it look heavy. And, um, you know, we've got Will, Willie Garson playing a roadie there. Um, you know, he, he's saying, you know, that the tire crapped out. A weird guy came out of the woods like Bigfoot or something, offered them some brew, and Rusty went with them. So, um, you know, we get one of those references to the the pilot where, you know, Andy is behind um, Rhodey um, and they're both crying together. It's kind of an, a nice echo that way. Um, and, you know, all the while this like, you know, highly melodramatic uh, story from the Rhodey is being told. You know, we've got the people holding the chess piece, trying to force that chess piece into an ambulance that's absolutely... Um, a square peg and the chess piece is a round ball. So, you know, like you, we hear chainsaws, you know, we hear, you know, people like, ah, you're stepping on my foot and everything. Like it's absolute, uh, you know, old school, uh, Abbott and Costello kind of comedy in the back. And, um, 
you know, it, it's really funny if you pay attention to it. But then, you know, in, in the front of the scene where the camera is pointing mostly, uh, we've got Cooper saying, you know, he's taken another pawn, Harry, but he didn't tell us his move. Wyndham Earl is playing off the board. So, you know, it's like we get all the proper drama. We get all the melodrama. We get the stakes uh, that Earl is... Um, enacting on the story uh we get the callback to andy crying and we get the absurdity happening behind them and it all works together and it all feels like it's part of the same uh the same town and then some details that weren't in the script that Jill Hall added uh there there's this touch of ben spinning towards some unseen sound that you know might actually be able to imply josie and um you know, then he's got the shaky hands thing that um, three of the characters do in this in this episode. Um, Hall in Reflection said, a whole thing in the script about a character feeling weird, and I got more and more into the arm part of it, and I really liked it. I thought we could shoot a close-up of it, or what if we or what if it started to shake and you couldn't control it? So I called David and asked him what he would think of some of the characters' hands shook just slightly. I think we even finished the episode with it. He said, Stephen, I'm glad you have your thinking cap on properly. I didn't get to spend much time with him, but I thought that's just who he is. Now, if you look at the script, you'll notice a, a thing about a gag that um, Lynch basically shot... Um, a six-page advertisement for Tim and Tom's taxidermy to be found in the access guide, um, the the book that I'll be talking about fairly soon. Um, and, um, yeah, it's all about, you know, Tim Pinkle and his brother Tom, who is blind but also a taxi driver. And we were going to have that gag in this very episode, um, and they were going to be the guys who drove John Justice Wheeler to the airport. But, you know, obviously, probably got cut out because they knew they were going to run out of time for all the other better stuff. But it's interesting that that gag was going to end up being a little bit more than just a, a throwaway thing that Lynch thought was funny for the access guide. Um, and then we have in this episode, a reshoot. Um, so the, the Bobby Shelley scene, um, you know, the, it, it ended up being filmed in the middle of March, which is probably after the season, yeah, after the season two finale was, um, was completed. Uh, and this, that scene is honestly probably the last thing that is shot for season two. Um, it kind of makes me wonder if, if they called Gyllenhaal back, makes me wonder if they called, uh, Gyllenhaal back for it or, if if there was a different director on it, like maybe even Lynch himself for it, you know, filling in some emotional continuity for how he filmed the two in episode twenty nine, where they're grabbing each other by the head and going and you know having having this cute moment where like you know if um what was supposed to happen is you know Bobby was only gonna like half apologize for being a jerk and like not necessarily feel like he understands that you know he needs to be better and that he feels like he kind of has an understanding of like treating Shelley with actual respect so i kind of feel like maybe the reshoot was because they needed to do like some emotional continuity for bobby at this point to get to episode 29 and make it not feel like uh like oh god why is she still with him like that like she just doesn't get it um 
you know, I mean, obviously this is all speculation on my part, but you know, um, what, what is an actual speculation is the numbers of this episode and we get the end result. So this episode first aired on April 18th of 1991 to 7.4 million viewers. And that's the official low point in the ratings, which you know is a shame considering how great and on point this episode actually is and how much momentum it brings to, um, you know, get people to the last two episodes. Um, and, you know, this is the last episode to air before it came back on June 10th of 1991. And, um, they announced they, they announced this um, over the air in the final credits of this episode where, um, you know, Lucy cuts in, you know, with a do 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 kind of, you know, that like a like a breaking news kind of thing. And she says that uh, Twin Peaks will come back in June. And um, and that's about all we've got for um, for how that episode was reacted to. I mean, at this point, I'm just going to go in the log lady intro. Margaret says, there are clues everywhere, all around us, but the puzzle maker is clever. The clues, although surrounding us, are somehow mistaken for something else. And the something else, the wrong interpretation of the clues, we call our world. Our world is a magical smokescreen. How should we interpret the happy song of the meadowlark or the robust flavor of a wild strawberry? So first of all, there's a mention of puzzle maker so it's it's almost like a nod to the puzzle box concept um but you know then it's uh you know potentially taking a shot at the puzzle box in that you know the focus on things like the actual puzzle box is redirecting there from what's actually important uh when 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 we see the uh, when when we hear the clues can be mistaken for something else, you know something else equals the wrong interpretation of the clues, which equals our world. So you know, don't worry about the puzzle box. Worry about what the things represent, and the representations can be seen in the smokescreen. If you're kind of following the grammar of what he's saying here, in a way. But, you know, the, the clues actually give us hints of the thing behind the magical smokescreen. That kind of tells me, you know, it's like look outside of the smokescreen for what the clues should really be telling you. I'd wager the, um, the thing behind is the flow and the cycle of energy. You know, that's what the donut is. And our magical smokescreen is the hole that he doesn't want us to focus on. As far as Lynch is thinking, you know, is this a meditation on what you should do while the rest of his Twin Peaks team went down a path where the lodges became a place you can physically go to? You know, is this a way for Lynch to begin reinterpreting how the lore in the show was just mistakenly being interpreted by characters incorrectly? Um, you know, rather rather than being angry at his, um, you know, his, his creative co-workers, um, you know, just getting something wrong behind the scenes, according to him. And, you know, he wasn't TV savvy to explain enough to them uh, what he really needed from them when they were making the the lore. You know, it's like, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> it's all speculation. Yeah. It's like, I know there's talk that Lynch didn't care for this direction of, you know, the lodge becoming a physical or a place you can physically access, like, 
you know, beyond energy or dreams or whatever. Um, and I know that helps solidify the rift between him and Frost at the time, because, you know, that he definitely felt like it was going in a weird direction. But, you know, why it happened in the first place is maybe, you know, he didn't know what exactly was wrong until it was already too far in progress. You know, like how the uh, how the long johns that um, that Earl was wearing in that one flute scene with um, with Leo uh, made it actually into the the filming before you know he knew how to outlaw it and ask for earl to be in a suit all the time um but you know i mean however the understanding came about i feel like you know this log lady introduction is in keeping with how all of that lodge spaciness is portrayed in season three while you know still actually having connection points to the show's physical reality um so it's kind of like a way to bridge the gap between um the the frostian approach to the lodges and um and lynch's like intuitive approach to it and you know we're pretty much at the point where we're going to start interpreting the episode so i will um i will let you hear some words from our fellow podcasters at ruminations radio network all right so welcome back we're going to start looking at the episode 27 as a whole uh with those questions that we had up front and the first question that we're going to look into is how does lodge space become explicitly connected to the physical world now the first item we really see that in is the Wyndham Earl Project Blue Book film uh where he says the evil sorcerers dugbas they're called they cultivate evil for the sake of evil nothing else they express themselves in darkness for darkness would without leaven at motive whatever he actually said there um this ardent purity allows them to access a secret place where the cultivation of evil proceeds in experimental fashion and with it the furtherance of evil's resulting power this place of power is tangible and as such, it can be found and entered and perhaps utilized in some fashion. The Dugpas have many names for them, but chief among them is the Black Lodge. You think that I am mad, overworked, go away. So Earl mentions the Dugpas there, and uh, we get a current day take on what he feels about the Dugpas in um, Twin Peaks' 1989. He says, You would have appreciated the Dugpas, Leo, ancient sorcerers, bent on evil, rather like the Cali worshippers in India, blood for breakfast, blood for lunch, and then he laughs. Those were the good old days. So that's kind of um, a nice, easy way to kind of frame, you know, it's like where Earl has come since that video. Um, but the video itself was in the late sixties, which was about 10 years before 1978 when Earl and Cooper first became partners at the FBI and, um, and you know, all those weird lodgy adjacent kind of happenings happened around Pittsburgh in, um, the autobiography, the, the autobiography of Dale Cooper, my life, my tapes. So if, if he's recording all this in the 60s, like he kind of learned it then, why would Earl wait until 1989 to enact any plans on this? Um, and I mean, from, from a calendar point of view, you know, because 1962 or, um, you know, if, if it's uh, 1964, um, if, it, if the um, alignment is every 25 years rather than 27, that would be the last time that Jupiter and Saturn would have met in in this Twin Peaks uh, world, um, which was just before Earl was loaned out to Blue Book. 
So he would have just missed the window when he was researching all this stuff. You know, he'd be dealing with the after effects of it and just learning like why it would be happening. Um, so he's been growing this hypothesis ever since, um, that video. And, um, you know, he's convinced that like, you know, since it's a place that you can enter and, you know, be used as a tool or a weapon, um, you know, it's like only now is when the alignment is going to happen again. So, um, yeah, I kind of feel like he's just stuck in place waiting for the right, um, the right frequencies and the right, uh, the right gravities of planets. So we've got Earl's motive there. And then the next way we see connections is with the petroglyph. Um, you know, Briggs talks about it. You know, he wants to see if any of the symbols have to do with harvest schedules or ancient calendars. Um, you know, look for any curious nomenclature. And that's what he tells Cappy about. Um, he's kind of nodding to, you know, the May Queen lore, you know, like where, um, you know, harvests and, um, yeah, I mean, like all, all those kind of, um, pagan rituals back in the day um you know but he's looking uh from a more spiritual perspective rather than the uh the community focus that the town puts on it perhaps um yeah i mean a may queen uh procedure um and speaking later on to harry cooper says out loud that the symbols suggest a time um, but you know, of course cooper strays from this plot line in favor of thinking about being with annie but um you know, we have Briggs also suggesting that there's a specific time when clamped onto um, a shooting target and, you know, filled with true serum uh, with Earl. In that scene with Earl, he says, um, you know, like when, when he starts having to answer truthfully to Earl, he says he first saw the petroglyph in Owl Cave in dreams. Um, when he was abducted, Briggs says that he saw... Um, there was a light, a guardian beyond it. I was taken to, but my mind, but still I recognize the signs. So what do the signs mean? Um, he says, there is a time if Jupiter and Saturn meet, they will receive you. And then he starts, you know, talking backwards and it's like that gum you like, it, it will, um, yeah, we'll come back in style. Um, you know, his words basically there are tying to the elderly waiter and also the little man. And um, Bobsy from uh, from the Diane podcast, he says, you know, is it his training um, using, you know, is is Briggs using those words, the backwards words, to turn himself off uh, from the uh, from this truth serum that um, is making him say more than he needs to, or is um, Briggs actually just being channeled here? Either way, it works out nicely. Um, but yeah, then we have um, the the Jupiter symbol is on the uh, the chalkboard image. You know that 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 four that almost has like a a two through a one that kind of forms a four shape. That's the Jupiter symbol, um, which was near the heart of the Guardian last episode. And, um, you know, like when, when they were showing the silhouette of the guardian over the chalkboard, I mean, and, um, you know, here is Jupiter again. And, um, I looked up Jupiter and it says, uh, Jupiter's symbol is the crescent of receptivity rising above the cross of matter. 
the the planet Jupiter will help people be more aware of what is beyond the physical world. Jupiter will give support to reaching for new things, expanding ideas, and improving. And um, apparently, according to Twin Peaks lore, um, access to that spiritual place. But um, um, we also see about the petroglyph, we see Earl move the... Uh, the the petroglyph onto the local Twin Peaks map with his computer programming. He, he tilts it on that angle and superimposes it over it. So um, Earl is the first one to know that in addition to a time, it also denotes a place as well. So that's tying it together physically. Um, and, you know, he's doing it using his lodge-based technology uh, and it's probably the exact same laptop that mr c uses to look into the prison plans um in um uh what was that part two of uh, season three um and um it's it it's got to be under similar intent frequency as when Doppel cooper uses cell phones in that strange way to make what he wants happen uh, happen, whether it made any sense or not, you know, like, uh, intercepting Daria's call or, um, doing that thing where like, you know, he chucks a cell phone at the truck in front of him. And suddenly the tracker that's on Cooper's car is now moved onto the, uh, the tractor trailer in front of him. And, um, you know, even though nobody physically moved the thing. Um, so, you know, it's like, Technology does weird things in a Black Lodge adjacent kind of way. But, you know, let's, um, you know, let, let's look beyond just how uh, Earl used technology to help him get into the door. And, um, you know, what, what starts happening as the, the time is nearing, as it's getting dark? Um, you know, first of all, we have, we have signs that possibly Josie is able to push through. Um, because, um, you know, we, we have that scene after Ben speaks to Audrey and um, he gives her the letter from Wheeler and uh, she leaves trying to get to him before he takes off. Um, we see Ben hearing a hum behind him and then he spins around to confront whatever it is. And um, the hum uh, implies the thin barrier that we'll see later on, I'm assuming. But, um, you know, it, it's less from a fear point of view. And... Um, more of an inquisitive, non-judgmental way between when um, Ben and Beverly are looking around for that same kind of hum in three scenes in season three. Um, but, you know, here Ben's just, you know, surprised by it and taken aback. Um, but right after that, um, after Audrey, or as Audrey is enlisting Pete to drive her to the airport, um, he's focused on a spot um about above the fireplace, uh, which is probably just on the other side of Ben's office and possibly in the same spot where um, Ben is hearing that hum. And he's making a comment about Josie, I see your face, uh, which implies to me that Josie is possibly moving through the building in a way that both Ben and Pete can experience, um, you know, at least partially like noticing her presence. And then we have the shaky hands this episode where, you know, the, the right hand is the one that is shaking as, um, you know, as the conjunction is beginning, uh, where the, the portal is able to begin opening, uh, the energy is flowing into receptive people through their right hand. Um, 
And that kind of reminds me of how the left hand is the one that has the ring. And that's the one that goes numb as the electricity leaves a person, probably. Um, so, you know, the, the supernatural current seems to flow from the right hand through the left. And, um, you know, all three of these people need the the left hand to hold their right hand in order to stop their shaking. So it almost like completes the circuit um, of, you know, like the, the human being, like, you know, does the energy fl just flow through um, normally from that point forward? Like, does that like uh, shock the system and regulate it so that like people can go back to flowing like normal? Um, but like, why would they, why would they get such an energy influx in the, in the first place? Um, we have all three of these people possibly, um, being too far into the frequency of like, you know, the, the positive or of the love or of appetite. Um, you know, it could be in opposition to the negative frequency that's pushing through with its own appetite, or it possibly is in tune with the appetites that come from early dreamy love or love of eating. Um, so yeah, it either resonates too much or it's uh, kind of opposed to it, but we've got in the double R where, you know, pies go to die. We've got a woman at the counter who's, um, shaking her right hand while she's eating cherry pie you know she's holding the fork um the the right hand starts shaking and she drops the fork and you know she needs to stop it with her left hand and she's um she's kind of wary from that moment forward like you know it's like oh that's not good or you know she's like feeling it um so you know was she uh was she there um you know literally having um you know, too much love for the, for the pie that she was eating because, you know, it's the best pie in the universe. Or I, I don't know. Um, and then we have Cooper at the station and, you know, he's talking to Harry about, you know, my, my symptoms suggest the onset of malaria. So, you know, that's kind of a, um, you know, is it delusional? Is it sickness from being out of balance? Um, but I've never felt better in my life. So is he cocooning because he feels safe to do so finally kind of in that Nadine way? Um, you know, then he looks out the window again, but you know, that's when his right hand is shaking until his left hand grabs it. Um, and you know, he, he exhales uncomfortably, um, as if he notices that that happened, but you know, we never hear him referred to it again. So, you know, does he just look the other way and proceed as normal from that point? Uh, and, um, then we have the, the third person who shakes is Pete. Uh, who's in his truck and you know he's all misty eyed at the airfield listening to Audrey and Wheeler um, you know exchange I love you's and all that and you know he's in he, he's in that range of their young love that's like more appetite than usual at this moment um, so you know maybe maybe he's remembering his own feelings when he was in that stage of love with Catherine who knows but um at that point, you know, his right hand is wiping away tears of, you know, joy for them and, you know, sympathy, love or whatever. Um, but, you know, that's when his right hand begins to shake until he grabs it with his left hand. Um, and, you know, he becomes, you know, kind of like soberly serious in his face from there. So, you know, it's like the the feeling has to kind of be overcome and um, 
settled down before the hand can stop shaking in all of these people. Um, but you know, th- those are the signs when there's still daylight out there. You know, what happens, what happens when it turns to night? All right. So when it's night, there's even more connections that begin to start happening. Um, there's more shaking, first of all. Um, it's it's even more pronounced than just the handshaking. Um, the people in proximity to Wyndham Earl, especially, are um, going a little wild. You know, it's like we've got Wyndham in his cabin, you know, shouting something about, uh, you know, a gibberish song that starts with Jupiter and Saturn meet. And uh, it's possible it's from uh, Shakespeare's The Tempest. Um, I hadn't actually verified that at this point, but uh, the odds point toward that. And um, we've got Leo shaking and yowling and just like, you know, just shouting like he's like he's being too influenced by the uh, the electricity in the air. And, um, you know, we, we see, um, you know, I mean, he, he's pressing his fingers into his eyebrows like his head's going to pop. And, uh, you know, we see that happening a lot in season three. And, uh, you know, then we have Briggs immobilized, um, you know, his head is also shaking. Um, and, uh, you know, Earl's singing a song and, um, you know, Earl says that the petroglyph is an invitation that says when, but, you know, Dale doesn't know that it's also a map, a map to the Black Lodge. And, uh, you know, it's, um, about as, uh, plain as day right there. <laughs> and, um, <clears throat> You know, this shaking is actually happening when Cooper is receiving the giant's warning. So just like, you know, um, whatever it is that's probably Josie that's able to push through certain perception barriers in the middle of the day, we've got the giant pushing through right here. And, um, you know, it's up on the stage of the roadhouse where the mayor is saying, is this thing on? And, um, you know, that's a callback to the pilot, first of all. And um, we have Annie talking about not being afraid of anything that Cooper makes her feel or want. So, you know, we have an appetite connection with Annie. And she says that she'll sign up for Miss Twin Peaks after all. And she says, you know, why not? Hear the other side, see the other side. There's worse places to start than Miss Twin Peaks. It's like a fairy tale. And then Cooper says in an answer, you know, the guy who's been working on a Wyndham Earl case with Chess for you know, a number of episodes now, he says, and you're the queen. So like, Dale, why would you say that? <laughs> I don't know. Um, it's, it's just like whistling the, the same song that Leland was uh, singing in episode 15. Um, you know, here we have Cooper inadvertently echoing Earl's language. So people adjacent to Bob and the Black Lodge stuff, um, always tends to get an echo from Cooper as well, uh, whether he knows it or not. Um, it, it almost is kind of like he's stuck in a Bardo scenario, like JC Hodgkiss suggests, um, in that, you know, everything could be kind of like tied to him, uh, because it's all part of him. You know, the, the reflections of, uh, yeah, of, you know, like the, the stage of the afterlife that you're in, you know, it's like, I, I could see that sort of working here. You know, but then there's also this um, this lodgy uh, connection that he has to the giant, and you know the room goes dark, except you know for the tight spotlight on Cooper's face, 
and um, you know the mayor's space goes completely black, then some light shows up along with the giant, and the giant is waving no, you know, like you know, with the arms just going back and forth, um, you know, wild in action according to the giant's usual lack of motion, but um, you know he's he's about as silent as drape runners. So, um, first of all, he's the reason you can tell probably because of, uh, you know, is this thing on? It's probably because the giant is trying to force his way through to send a message to Cooper. Um, but, you know, could it also be that, um, you know, the giant is silent because his waiter isn't available to, um, you know, create his voice here? Um, you know, has the waiter died? Um, you know, the next time we see the waiter, he's in the red room speaking the same, like, half backwards uh, language frequency as the other denizens there. Um, you know, if, if the waiter did die, uh, you know, that's kind of a precursor to the how and why Philip Gerard could be inside the red room speaking backwards in season three. Uh, because, you know, maybe they had both died in the physical world and um yeah and then they somehow are too connected to the red room to you know not move on properly outside of the red room i don't know but if the giant is only able to push through the microphone's electricity line visually for the gifted and the damned uh we have cooper being one of those people or, or technically, can the giant get through and he's only silent because it cannot be said aloud now? Um, you know, there, there's weird lodge rules all over the place, so it could be that, too. Um, yeah, or is it just as simple as the giant is silent because Cooper can feel the tune, but not yet hear it, as he said about um, all the connections of Earl's plot? Um because, you know, he holds the eye contact with his vision of the giant, but it's almost like he's not actually seeing it. It's almost like, you know, he can feel that there's something there. He's not quite sure what it is, and therefore he doesn't heed it as a warning. Um, <clears throat> because, you know, he never says anything about it afterwards, and he never, um, you know, he never actually helps Annie. Um, think that like okay maybe this isn't a good idea i've just had a vision that you know they're they're suggesting no to what just happened yeah so is cooper knowing something's there but he's just blind to it because maybe love moved him into the want and appetite phase um you know kind of like when nadine's love frequency you know her healing frequency um went into want and appetite and then she was practically assaulting mike um <clears throat> you know to go out with her you know the uh the push 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 until they say yes thing um is that kind of where cooper is in his way um you know maybe he's moved into the love frequency or through the uh you know the um the love frequency into want and appetite so um you know, regardless, this is the first time that there seems to be a disconnect between him and the Lodge Space denizens that, you know, speak to him. All we know for sure is that the giant is obviously sending him a message that 
Cooper is making eye contact with the same general way that Annie was staring uh, into as well a little bit earlier when she was looking away from Cooper expressing her wants. So like maybe she was feeling something then too and didn't know what it was. Um, but, you know, however it is, the giant is remarkably undeliverable at this point. And um, the, the giant drops out of visibility and it's a cut back to black. And then the mayor comes back and Cooper returns as the spotlight leaves um, his his face. And, you know, regular light resumes around him along with Annie's incoming kiss that, um, you know, he turns his head to intercept. And, uh, you know, that possibly finishes wiping Cooper's vision of the memory uh, for good. Um, and, you know, we, we hear while they're kissing, the mayor says there's something wrong, but, you know, Cooper and Annie don't seem to hear that either. So what is wrong? Well, um, it shifts to the outside where the, uh, you know, it's the roadhouse parking lot, which in season three is a signpost of which frequency we're really experiencing, according to my interpretation of things. And, um, so, yeah, I mean, we get that as, like, part of the greater whole of Twin Peaks. And, um, you know, it it's kind of similar to what may be happening elsewhere at the same time, uh, which is, you know, the cause of all the shaking, which is Bob pushing through. <clears throat> so we go through the whole town first. You know, it's like we get... Um, all of it is seemingly affected by the supernatural mood that the giant was also kind of using to get through. Um, and all of these uh, locations have the same slow speed camera push in um, as you go. So it gives that dread element that um, Lynch used so, so um, perfectly in that, in that moment of the season two premiere where um you know, it, it turns into Ronit's vision of Bob killing Laura. Um, <clears throat> and we get, you know, the, the three traffic lights at night. Uh, then we see the double R all closed up and dark from, you know, aside from its neon. Um, then we get the hospital hallway. Then we get the great northern hallway. And a phone ringing in an empty sheriff's station lobby with only one lit table lamp. And... Um, then we get uh, a conference, you know, the conference room and the petroglyph chalkboard moved in on. And um, the ringing phone, you know, it's like there are so many phones that ring that don't get answered um, that, you know, it's like it's almost like another warning that nobody can hear here. And um, I know it also reminds me of Part 18 over at Carrie Page's house. Uh, with the phone that uh, neither she nor Cooper seem to care about. Um, so it's almost like another one of those kind of alerts. But yeah, after the conference room in the petroglyph, it, we see a bunch of blowing trees. And um, we'll get the first look at the portal circle at Glastonbury Grove. You know, from this wide shot of that portal, uh, we see a little bit of spotlight pointing to the left around maybe shoulder height of where, um, you know, a person would be in that equation. Um, and it's just barely lighting some of the trees nearby. 
And at this point, we're hearing Bob's voice from somewhere too. Uh, you know, just just laughing. You know, it's not actual words. Um, and you know, then we see his bendy fingers, his right hand, pushing through until it's his arm up until the elbow, and this is spotlit like strongly. You know, the the people experiencing the wand based emotion. Um, Earlier this episode, you know, Pete Cooper and the woman eating the pie, um, you know, they, they were shaking similarly to his hand motions here. So uh, Bob wants back out and everything being fractal were those shakes, you know, like pre-shocks to a to a time quake adjacent thing. Um, you know, could Cooper Cooper's missing of the giant's warning have to do with how he's already had a shaking hand. Um, you know, is he on the wrong channel? Um, and you know, this also gives more credence to Annie being a lodge plant or, you know, related to, uh, lodginess. And then we have Bob seemingly pushing all the way through and, you know, his spotlight goes out when he pulls his arm to his side and we see him we see him standing stock still uh just outside the white circle and um you know the camera at that point pans down to the circle and we see a reflection of the red room curtains and the saxophone music of the red room the dance of the dream man you know it's things like this that my tamquake theory came from uh, where, you know, physical interactions between Lodge Space and the physical world, um, you know, shake both states of realities at once. And we we kind of see the foreshocks with the shaking hands earlier in the episode. And um, also that that hum that could be Josie. And, you know, obvious, the, the giant, too, in a way. And, um, you know, the, the quake itself, in this case, could be Bob pushing through. But... Um, you know, either way, like how I see lodge interactions happening with um, with the world. I mean, even if it doesn't like, you know, change reality exactly, um, there are these gradual effects that start slow over scenes, over episodes um, when realities bump into each other like that. And, um, you know, we, we kind of see how my terminology started for that uh, right here. Okay, so those are the instances of lodge spaciness in, you know, or like, you know, the meeting of lodge space and the physical world here. But um, how do we see Cooper and Earl get closer to understanding each other's plans in this episode? Okay, so first of all, let's look at the chess game. Um, you know, the last time that we saw Cooper and Earl reference chess in the whole episode is in this episode. So they're kind of clearing the table of the chess metaphor here. You know, in scene one for Cooper, you know, Rusty's getting taken out of the gazebo in the chess piece that Earl uh, put him in before he killed him. You know, we learned that um, Earl came out of the woods like Bigfoot or something, offered them brew, took Rusty with him, um, almost in like a Pied Piper kind of way. And, uh, you know, we have the Rhodey and Andy crying, but, um, you know, what what Cooper... Um, decides about all this is that he's taken another pawn harry but he didn't tell us his move Wyndham earl is playing off the board and you know later this episode we see earl actually brushing the pieces of his board um soon after that when w one of those scenes with leo 
you know, that that's pretty much the end of Earl deciding that chess is the metaphor where you can, you know, learn every pattern of life through it or whatever. <laughs> I know that's basically just the writers on duty, um, you know, finally ending the chess thing now that, you know, they, they don't really know how to play chess. So, um, <laughs> you know, they're, they're just, you know, getting the metaphor cleared so that they can go officially into this new direction for the next three episodes. But, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting as a character trait, um, that he would just leave the chess at this point. I guess he feels he's a little bit close to his end destination and he doesn't need to think so much about the worldly plans at this point. Yeah, now he just needs his sacrifices. Uh, but yeah, next we we have um talk about the poem. Uh, you know, now that now that Audrey is back in town, <clears throat> Hawk could intercept her as part of the uh will the you know it, as I mean, that ends up becoming an element of the will they won't they meet before John Justice Wheeler leaves. But, you know, it also closes off the poem subplot in its way. Um, you know, Cooper is there with the girls, um, you know, talking about how, you know, Wynnum Earl um, sent them this, uh, you know, no one, you know, according to the girls, no one showed up then, um, even though we saw Earl, you know, creeping on them uh, from a, a little bit afar. Uh, but you know, he asks, uh, have they had an interact? Have they had contact with a stranger? And all three recount the weird interactions that were definitely the Earl sequences that we've already seen. You know, they're they're just told at this point to check in with the sheriff every day at 9 a.m. and 9 p.m. And he says, don't do anything alone. You're in danger. We all are. You know, it's interesting that you know, absolutely no one heeds these instructions. And, um, you know, th this plot is essentially sealed off here. And, um, you know, the file, the final showdown is set up now that, um, the poems and the chess pieces are, you know, done as far as plot points and why they're closed off is because of all these, um, you know, final showdown pieces that are being set up here, uh, via major briggs um you know he brings a lot of lodge information to them here um he brings it by choice to cooper and it's extracted from him by earl against his will so um yeah first time we see briggs he's in the sheriff's station giving instructions to cappy with the hairy hair you know about you know see if the symbols have to do with harvest schedules or ancient calendars look for curious nomenclature and um okay cappy um, possible verification that Coop, that, that Harry has an illegitimate son somewhere in Twin Peaks, you know, uh, or, you know, like an ex-wife or something, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's uncanny how much this guy, um, is, uh, emulating the style that Michael Onkeen brings to the show. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I feel like maybe they did that on purpose as a, uh, as a way to possibly give Harry a storyline in the future, but yeah, you know, whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, besides that, that doesn't exactly go anywhere other than, you know, we're supposed to associate the symbols on the petroglyph with these sorts of thoughts. You know, Briggs says that he spent all night perusing the blue book files pertaining to Wyndham Earl, and he found it impossible to sleep after. So, um, you know, it's disturbing enough to Briggs, um, from the sound of things. 
And then we have Earl, I mean, uh, Earl being put into context by Briggs here. He says, Earl was the best and brightest among us. But when our attention turned from outer space to the wood, the wooded areas surrounding Twin Peaks, he became destructively obsessive. Earl acted in an overzealous and secretive manner, possessive of his assignments, and finally violent. He was removed from the project. So, yeah, like, um, <clears throat> when confronted with power, some people try to possess it. Uh, some people try to fight to keep it, you know, make secrets around it. And, um, yeah, it always ends up leading to a downfall, especially in Twin Peaks when somebody keeps too many secrets. And, um, yeah, he was removed from the project because of it. And, um, this was the state that Earl was in when he was recording himself for this thing that was converted to a VHS tape, um, that they're watching here. Um, and, um, Honestly, this performance, um, w uh, you know, Kenneth Welsh does a great job differentiating between Earl then and Earl now. And um, it's genuinely menacing and along the lines of mind like a diamond, like Cooper was talking about. I mean, he's a little wild and everything, but it seems like he's got it all kind of lining up in his head. So what do we learn from Earl's, you know, from Earl's words? Uh, paraphrasing, we learn that the place of evil's resulting power is tangible, and as such, it can be found and entered, and perhaps utilized in some fashion, and its name is the Black Lodge. Cooper and the gang all know that this was a thought on his mind. Uh, so, you know, I've already hypothesized that why he didn't try to get into the lodges back then is because he needed to wait for Jupiter and Saturn conjunction before he could try it again, although he doesn't technically know that here. So, um, yeah, who knows exactly how it's working. I feel like he does know that there's some kind of conjunction he's waiting for. Or maybe he could just kind of feel it coming, or he's uh, got connections to Bob already. I mean, there's there's things I'm going to hypothesize in the My Life, My Tapes episode about Earl that um, I, I think, you know, we're supposed to be able to kind of puzzle together, like, his whole um, vibe as he's been pursuing the Black Lodge. Um, but... Um, Regardless of that, Cooper concludes after this video that he assumed Earl came for vengeance for me, but I miscalculated. He has insinuated himself in the lives of people I care for. He has manipulated innocence. He has engaged us in subterfuge and red herring, a fish I don't particularly care for. But all of these acts are mere camouflage. He's been after something else all along, the Black Lodge. So it's a nice way to, um, change Earl's arrival from a revenge plot into this um, this race to get to the Black Lodge that happens over the next three episodes. It also kind of um, points out, though, that Cooper's lack of intuition on this whole thing um, has been a little bit self-centered this whole time. And, um, yeah, like, maybe not quite on point with this Lodge stuff, you know, shown again when he doesn't exactly hear the giant's message. So, yeah, Cooper has changed his characterization since around, you know, his flannel period, or maybe a little bit later, um, like when Annie showed up. Um, but, you know, it's like you don't necessarily notice that in, um, 
you know, in, in your first time viewing back in the 90s. Because, <laughs> you know, technically maybe um, maybe Earl's mind really is like a diamond and he's so smart that he outsmarted Cooper. And yeah, I don't know. But um, anyway, the, the fact that um, Cooper mentions the Black Lodge here. Um, you know, Earl is chasing the Black Lodge and now Cooper is as well. So he's on... You know, he's not talking about the White Lodge that um, Briggs might have been associated with. He's talking about the Black Lodge only. You know, he's after the one that's based in fear, which he will call out by name uh, between now and episode 29. So it's it's interesting that he's leaving out the White Lodge at this point. And kind of explains maybe his outcome at the end. Uh, but anyway, Cooper needs to know what Earl's rant on the tape has to do with the petroglyph. Uh, they're going to look into the Dugpas, etc. And um, the Major is going to get some rest and uh, take a good stretch with perhaps a walk in the woods. And for some reason, nobody bats an eye at this. And Harry signs off on it saying, good idea. Don't forget the breadcrumbs. But, you know, is it a good idea? After just talking about the woods around Twin Peaks that, in that way, um, it, it seems like negligence that Briggs doesn't at least have an escort, uh, you know, especially if he's meant to return soon after to recommence the researching with, uh, with the guys. Um, you know, it's like Cooper's worried about the girls and the poems, you know, like not being alone. Yet here he just, you know, lets Briggs go without even a deputy. Uh, but, you know, that adds up because, you know, he mentions how later, you know, the petroglyph suggests a time and he notes that the major hadn't returned yet and that instead of being worried about that kind of stuff, he's mostly been thinking about Annie Blackburn and he talks about her more than, um, you know, that mere name drop of Major Briggs at the beginning of the scene. So, you know... It's it's essentially putting into like textual evidence that he's shifting away from a frequency involving the investigation to a frequency of of wants and appetite for Annie that he'll be on all the way through the end of the episode. And, you know, because Earl was listening to that tape when Earl when uh, Briggs said that he was going to go take a walk in the woods. And, you know, knowing that he was going to be alone, Earl ends up um, getting ready to um, to intercept Briggs. Um, you know, he's playing off the board. He knows that the petroglyph is a map at this point. You know, while Cooper and Harry and everybody don't know that the petroglyph is a map, we know that the bad guy does think it is. Um and, you know, th this is basically a mystery that's already solved for the viewers and the villain, but not for the investigators. So we get to see them trying to um, investigate that as they go. It, it ends up being just like how Leland being in Bob was for two episodes, you know, before before they caught him officially. Like this is Wyndham Earl knowing about the map two episodes before that's going to you know, become a thing that the lawmen know about. So it ends up making the lawmen seem kind of dumber than they are in a way, uh, rather than Earl being smarter. And it takes away some of the, some of the oomph 
to, um, you know, what is Earl up to for us? Um, but you know, it, it, it wouldn't be so bad because, you know, like that whole Leland, you know, being two steps ahead of the lawman, um, that kind of worked for a little while and that could have worked here too, except it's done alongside the whole Donna's parentage storyline already in progress where, um, everybody, you know, viewers and everybody know without anybody like explicitly saying Donna is Ben Horn's daughter, you know, it's like, we already know enough that it seems like we are getting way more answers in this show right now than the investigators. And it's just not as uh, compelling that way. But anyway, because Earl knows that it's a map, he can throw shade at the lawman to Leo. And he says, you know, Leo, the only thing Columbus discovered was that he was lost. Cooper and the gang haven't even left the snide yet. So, you know, he's, he's definitely in Leland. Um, uh, you know, it's like, we, we know Leland's Bob, but he's getting away with things anyway. He, Earl is in that mode right now. And that part basically works. Okay. But yeah, we, what we can learn from that is Earl has listened to all of that, including his old blue book era video. And he isn't worried that they have information because he's already ahead of them. It's kind of like, um, when Mr. C, uh, sends that text to Diane, uh, that says, has anyone mentioned Vegas yet? You know, it's like secrets will get out, but not in time. And, um, you know, that, that's the assumption that Earl is making here that, you know, it's like, you know, secrets always do get out, but you know, it won't be in time for anybody to stop him doing his plan. Um, and, you know, Earl programs his computer to zoom in on the petroglyph and match it exactly to part of the town map, uh, the logistic computer processing and, um, you know, then we have the plans to intercept Briggs in the woods, which goes like this. So <clears throat> Briggs is in a clearing in the woods. Um, he checks a tree and feels something in his neck tattoo, like a warning almost. And, you know, maybe that's why he stopped in the first place, because he got the warning. Or maybe he can feel... Um, Earl's aggressive presence approaching, um, or, you know, maybe it's his intuition going off, but it's a warning that comes a little bit too late or, you know, at least he acknowledges it before it happens. Unlike what Cooper does with the giant. Um, but anyway, Earl and Leo are approaching in the horse costume singing home on the range. Well, I mean, Earl is singing Leo silent. Um, and, you know, a hand appears from the suit with a gun and it shoots basically the unmoving, not responding, not uh, fight or flight mode Briggs in the chest with a tranquilizer dart. And, um, you know, why doesn't Briggs take off? Well, it's probably the same reason why he doesn't recall at all or recoil at all to um, Margaret touching his neck at the double R a few episodes ago. You know, it's a he he is more of a. Uh, what what do you call it? Almost like a meditative state where, you know, it's like you you let, you know, you, you acknowledge that other thoughts are entering your brain, but, um, you just acknowledge them 
and uh, put them away and go back to meditating. Like I feel like there's the the stillness in Briggs is doing that sort of thing, even though crazy people in a horse suit are walking toward him with a tranquilizer dart gun. But anyway, after he's been shot, Earl says, long time no see, Briggsy. And uh, Earl reveals his face at this point. There's a lot of laughter. And, um, you know, he makes a joke to Leo saying, you know, Leo, you may have found your calling, you know, uh, being a horse's ass. And, um, you know, why did he bring Leo in the first place? Well, to carry an unconscious Briggs back to the cabin. Um, why the horse suit? Nobody knows. But, uh, yeah, uh, it's, um, I kind of like it. It's sort of a low point of the episode with the horse suit, but it's also crazy enough to, um, you know, to, to give a surreal tone to it. And, um, anyway, we get Earl next, I mean, yeah, next time we see, uh, Briggs is in Earl's cabin and he's, he's, um, strung up and like clamped with his, you know, his, his neck is clamped and everything to this target looking thing. And, um, you know, Earl coerces, uh, Briggs into, um, or I mean, he tries to coerce Briggs into revealing information, but, you know, you know, he asks, you know, when did you first see the symbol in Al Cave? And he says, I am not at liberty to divulge that information. And, you know, he gets a dart near, you know, near his head, uh, from Earl and, um, you know, Earl asks, what does the cave painting mean? And he says, I am not at liberty to divulge that information. And uh, Earl shoots a dart against er, uh, against Briggs's side and, um, you know, still won't answer that information, even though it seems like he's going to be getting shot soon. Um, you know, what's the what's the capital of North Carolina? And Briggs just says Raleigh. So, you know, he will answer things that he's allowed to answer but he sticks to his code this whole time. And, you know, Earl admires the major's fortitude, but, you know, he doesn't have the time to play their game, so he syringes a truth serum into a needle and then into the major's gut. So, um, you know, and then, and then Earl's, like, pretending to toss that same dart at Leo uh, for him to catch it, you know, just playing with Leo. And... um then he starts the real question. So, you know, your name, please, Garland Briggs. Garland, what do you fear most in the world? The possibility that love is not enough, which is probably the best line in the episode. Um, you know, ask his wife's weight, uh, 115. Good for her. And, um, you know, now the Briggs is primed for that kind of stuff. You know, and, and he's like giving more and more personal answers as he goes. Um, then he asks then he asks Briggs, you know, now when did you first see the petroglyph in Al Cave? And we learn that um he says in dreams. Uh what kind of dreams? Uh he was night fishing with Agent Cooper and there was a light. So he he recognizes the light for sure. Uh a guardian beyond it. So he recognizes that the guardian was there. Um and um I was uh, I was taken to but my mind but still I recognize the signs. Uh, so, you know, like he, he sort of mentions the petroglyphy kind of stuff, but, um, you know, what do the signs mean? Um, there is a time if Jupiter and Saturn meet, they will receive you. 
And then he says uh, syllables that are actually the backwards uh, versions of that gum you like is coming back in style. And we get Earl saying, uh, you know, Leo put Briggs to bed as his mind has wandered. And then he says, there is a time where Jupiter and Saturn meet. So it's interesting that the petroglyph came to Briggs, um, even though it was still covered up by a rocky wall at that point um, in the physical world. But, you know, here's how we get Earl knowing that, um, you know, there's a time for the, uh, the lodges to be available to, you know, humans who want to find it. So now that, um, you know, Cooper, Cooper lets himself be distracted by the dreaminess of his new love with Annie, um, he misses the warning with the giant. And because Earl is focused on his end game, um, you know, that's his actual goal. He's still going after that goal. And, um, you know, he's excited, um, but he's coherent in the cabin when, you know, Leo's just shouting and, you know, Briggs is quaking. And, um, you know, at that point, Earl is completely in tune with the energy that's happening. And, um, you know, he might even be on his way to meet Bob. You know, if if the blacked out teeth next next episode uh, have anything to say about things, um, his proximity is definitely approaching Bob. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. It's interesting how all of that is working. And, um, you know, while while Earl and Cooper are in a plot where the supernatural is breaking through the physical world, we have a whole bunch of other plots happening with, with the more, you know, mundane characters. Um, you know, their, their internal struggles are basically breaking through as well. And, um, you know, they're having breakthroughs when they do it. And we see a lot of that in our next question, which is how do characters break through their impasses to embrace personal accountability? So first of all, there's, um, you know, there are a couple people on the uh, not so altruistic paths uh, taking their destiny into their own hands like Earl. Um, you know, we've got Catherine and Andrew uh, getting one layer closer to the core of their puzzle box. You know, first off, we uh, we get an explanation of where Andrew's been the past few episodes, which you know gives some more insight into Ben's ways, too. You know, he says, investors are jumping from Paris to Beijing. You're going to get your golf course, Catherine, right next to the Great Northern Hotel. And, um, you know, Catherine brings up, you know, that Ben's trying everything he can to stop us. And Andrew says, it's too late. When the project was still in his possession, Ben cleared every possible hurdle, the zoning impact statements. He was and is his own worst enemy. So yeah, I mean we get <laughs> we get that nice detail about Ben here, but um also, you know, it's like we see these people hurtling forward, um, you know, focused only on their ghostwood plot and this crazy puzzle box. You know, they're they're on their way to winning the battle that they've been waging against Ben with Ghostwood. But, you know, now um Andrew also has his curiosity piqued by this puzzle box. You know, Catherine's voice basically says his worm, his woman servant Jones delivered this to me shortly after he died. And Andrew says Eckert's last request, a clever joke, perhaps something of value, but he doesn't say perhaps a trap. <laughs> uh, anyway, he takes the puzzle box and, you know, he's in tune with Eckert enough to know that, um, 
you know, maybe this is how you open it, but not think of, you know, what might be in there when you get it open. Uh, so, uh, you know, he pushes the buttons, quote unquote. And, you know, I mean, the camera isn't looking at him doing this because obviously there are no actual buttons on the on the puzzle box. But, um, you know, he keys in uh, Thomas Eckert's birth date, Andrew Packard's birth date, and the the day that the gift arrived. So one of the things that Jones, this is one of those things that Jones did after Eckert died. You know, she put together the puzzle box and set that, um, set that code to open apparently, which means that she's probably the one who also rigged the explosive in the safety deposit box as well. Anyway, the, um, the box actually opened because Andrew was intuitive enough to do that. And there's the, um, the the small rectangular metal box that remains. So that's the the third of three puzzle boxes inside um, the first one. And you know, of course, that doesn't end well. And basically, people who want more power, who are prone to winning at all costs, they end up getting killed by their curiosity. And you know, I'm talking about Andrew and uh, Earl here. And also, it kind of makes me think that. Maybe, yeah, I mean, the petroglyph is similar to Thomas Eckert's box that way. You know, the the fixation and curiosity to distract Earl with while the trap inside the petroglyph's answer will kill him. On a different level, we've got Lana um, on her quest to become Miss Twin Peaks. You know, the contest stage is being constructed and the mayor comes over to her all excited. He says that the other judges will be Norma and Dick. The contest is in the bag. He'll, um, he'll get Dick to get Dick and Lana together in a room. Uh, Dick will see her gams, etc., And that'll seal the deal, which is, you know, good for the mayor because that because lana made an ultimatum that she won't marry him until she wins so she's coercing him to help her which doesn't help in the end just like earl's help can't be coerced in order to um you know get the soul from cooper um it doesn't count if um if you force your helpers um, and, you know, she ends up getting paid by not winning in episode 28, uh, you know, regardless of what secret history of Twin Peaks says. So, yeah, we have the people in the negative point of view um, kind of, you know, taking their destiny into their own hands and coercing everybody into doing what they want to do. But um, then there's... Um, the per you know the uh the personal accountability side of like what your actions do for others you know rather than to others and you know just in general it's like being able to accept what you are doing rather than you know just doing it because you want to you know because it's just going to be good for you and we see um we we basically see in this episode, Lucy decides that she'll choose who she wants to raise her child with, regardless of biological fatherhood. So, um, you know, Harry pats the thing and says, hello, Lucy. And, you know, Cooper does the same little pat at the uh, at the entryway, you know, like on their way on their way back into the into the office. And um, 
you know, then Andy gets called over by her and, you know, she basically says, you know, what do you know about saving the planet? So, you know, she tells him that she's taking fate into her own hands. And, you know, she says, mostly because the suspense is too much for me. Tomorrow is D-Day, Dad Day. In 24 hours, I will choose the father of my child, is what she says. So she's deciding here, instead of deciding on nature to dictate who she wants to be with, um, she's deciding on nurture. You know, who is the person who is going to be best to raise her child with? And, um, you know, that's a proactive decision rather than reacting to what the world has given you uh, circumstantially. And, um, you know, then she also tells Andy that she's joining the Miss Twin Peaks contest because I, we could use the money, which means she's planning ahead, too. So, you know, good things are ahead for Lucy because she's taking uh, responsibility for what is happening to her rather than just being a passenger. And, um, you know, in the same episode, we get Bobby snapping out of asshole mode, you know, for the last time in the show. Um, you know, there, there's the woman eating the pie with the shaky hands who's um, eating the uh, the pie in the diner. Uh, but, you know, was she shaking just because of her interest in the pie? Or was it because she's also really close to an outpouring of genuine tenderness between Bobby and Shelly here? Um so, you know, it shifts over immediately after the woman and the fork um, to the booth where Bobby and Shelly are going over the Miss Twin Peaks speech that he's having her, uh, you know, do at Miss Twin Peaks. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, then, but he's saying to her, you know, I've been thinking, forget about the contest. I've been thinking about us. I know that I've not been paying the right kind of attention to you lately. And, you know, he, he says that he got in with Ben, you know, he started wearing suits, suddenly he's acting all like he's better than everybody else. And um, Shelly says, you were pretty crummy, Bobby. I've missed you. I miss all the things we used to do together. And, um, you know, Bobby continues and says, when I saw you kissing that guy, <sighs> <laughs> he just does this crazy exhale, uh, you know, like, and, uh, you know, then he says, you know, something snapped. It was like my brain rolled over and I could see all the stuff that was special to me, all the stuff that matters. So, you know, it took a Gordon sized disruption to leave room for him to um, see his behavior, like what it's doing to people and giving him an opportunity to change that behavior. And, you know, I mean, it's basically, he needed the disruption to get to an understanding of the effect of what he was doing because he saw Shelly being genuinely happy with somebody completely different. And it made Bobby ask himself, you know, what was he doing that, you know, wasn't allowing Shelly to be like that with him anymore. And he says, I love you, Shelly, and I want to spend my time with that. I mean, you know, if that's okay with you, I'd like to do that, which also show that he understands boundaries now, too. And, you know, he was disrupted out of the, uh, you know, rise to the top thing that he'd been doing since at least episode 18, um, you know, of accumulating power. And he basically reacclimated with his uh with his own personal understanding of people and, you know, um, his, his tenderness that he has inside him. And, um you know, then he, uh, he and Shelly kiss and they have the magic back for sure. 
And we also have Audrey taking personal accountability for her relationship with uh, John Justice Wheeler. You know, it's like she had all these things in the way. But then when she got back from Seattle and, you know, she got done with her, um, you know, necessary things with the uh, the law enforcement over that poem. Um, but, you know, she, um, you know, basically um, from that point forward, um she gets to chase after John Justice Wheeler, but you know because she um, because she was taken away to that meeting about the poem, uh, we got a chance to hear um, why John Justice Wheeler has to leave in the first place. And you know, I mean, he has to explain it to Ben rather than Audrey, but at least we get a chance to hear it without uh, being sidelined for romance or whatever. And um, Wheeler says, "A brave man is dead. He was my friend. I have to take his place." And, you know, Ben just tells him, it's like, you aren't coming back, are you? And, um, you know, Wheeler doesn't answer him. And Ben just says, you know, damn this rainforest business anyway. Wheeler gives Ben a letter for Audrey and then he leaves. And, you know, Ben actually wishes him good luck here. So, you know, it has nothing to do chemistry between the characters, um, why we heard this explanation. And, you know, I mean, it was nice for Ben to be able to wish him good luck, um, sort of altruistically but you know then we um we finally get audrey coming back after um after she got done at the sheriff's station um we see wheeler coming out of the elevator after she's just out of visual range so he leaves so you know i mean it's kind of going along with the comedy you know the 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 screwball comedy uh tropes of the old movies you know like where they're just missing each other um you know, but they've been participating in those kind of tropes, like since the beginning, you know, with like trying to explain themselves at the exact same time. And they're accidentally talking over each other, you know, thing, things like that. This fits right in with that. And we have Audrey going into Ben's office asking for where Wheeler is. Um, but, you know, instead we get Ben pitching her on being the spokeswoman for Stop Ghostwood, um, asks her to sign up for Miss Twin Peaks. And, you know, she isn't having it this time. You know, she already went to Seattle for Ben um, on short notice. But, you know, this time she's sticking up for herself. And, um, you know, she, she she'll deal with this later. Um but, you know, what she says to him back is, where is John Justice Wheeler? And, you know, then he says that he's left for the airport. Here's his letter. And, you know, she leaves right away to catch him because she she is going to be damned if uh, she doesn't try. And, um, you know, she enlists Pete to drive her to the airfield and they're out the door. And a few scenes later... Um, you know, in another act, we'll see Wheeler preparing his plane to leave. And, you know, after one more longing look around, uh, he steps into his airplane and closes its door. But, you know, then a few scenes later, we see Pete's truck tearing down the runway uh, and pulls in front of Wheeler's plane just as it's beginning to move. And, um, you know, Wheeler gets out. He says, you know, I guess a simple goodbye was out of the question. And they have this great hug and a kiss. Um, you know, they, they both ex- exchange I love yous. And, um, you know, he, he tells her he doesn't know when he'll be back. And, you know, her her response to that is, I'm a virgin. I want you to make love to me, uh, et cetera. And, uh, you know, I mean, it kind of falls flat until, you know, he, he's like, ah. And, and she says, it's your jet. And, uh, you know, then he says, well, thank God for that. And <laughs> that line delivery was fun. But, um, you know, what, what happens here is she got her chance, I mean, to, uh, 
to get to her choice of man in time. And um, she gets the moment that she wants because she fought for it. And, um, you know, this gets Pete all misty eyed. And that's, you know, when he when his hand shakes. But, um, yeah, you know, it's like that's that's, you know, good for Audrey. You know, she's she's um, going after what she wants and, you know, doing, you know, taking the steps to make it happen. And, you know, then there's Ben doing similar things. Uh, you know, he's, um, he's um, you know, completely fallen for the goodness that comes from personal accountability, which is good. Um, but, you know, then he's kind of on both sides of the fence here because, you know, it's like he wants to expose everything to the light, no matter the cost. And that's where it gets complicated for Ben. You know, it's like the instinct is good. The execution is destructive. And, uh, you know, we get that in the scene between him and Doc Hayward. Um, you know, it's like Doc has just finished a physical on Ben. You know, Ben's still got his shirt off and everything. Um, and Ben says, you're fine. It's what in what's in your heart that you should be worried about. And, um, you know, Ben just says, I know I've given you reason to doubt me, but I am only interested in doing the right thing for everybody. You know, it's like doing the right thing is one thing, but then for everybody is a thing that he's still having trouble listening to because Will says right here, then stay away from Eileen. And Ben says, I can't, not as long as the lie survives. Ben has basically felt so good about exposing his previous badness to light that, you know, he wants to expose all of it now even more under that same exact logic because if A, then B. Except that, you know, what he thinks is if A is actually an if C, <laughs> you know, you're not going to get to B that way, uh, Ben. But, um, you know, Will tries to tell him, he says, damn it, Ben, it's not that simple. I believe you. I applaud your desire to do the right thing. But goodness in you is like a time bomb. There's nothing good about ruining lives, which is kind of uh, how I've been describing Ben's um using the good as a weapon rather than a tool. But um, here, you know, ticking time bomb, it's more comparisons to bombs, which, you know, now that I've seen all of Twin Peaks, obviously equates with the A-bomb in part eight um, and its ramifications of, uh, you know, something exploding in reality. Um, and, um, you know, this is like fractally much, much smaller, but under the same kind of rules. Um and, you know, that kind of gets toyed with in the final dossier with how the ramifications of this unspoken secret getting out. Um, you know, it ends up breaking apart the Hayward family. Uh, you know, Will Hayward moves to Vermont, you know, divorces Eileen, basically, leaving her to have to be paid for by Ben um, over the years. Um, and, um, you know, Harriet's in Seattle. Uh, the only one who remains is... Um, is Gersten, and obviously she doesn't do so well in season three. Um, so you know, like when when secrets like this are brought to light to all parties, including Donna, who doesn't do too well in Final Dossier right away until she um, heals from it, sort of. Um, you know, it's like the those are like all the bank shot issues that Will is warning Ben about here. Um, even though Ben is trying to take personal accountability for the past in the present. 
you know, Ben, Ben basically says it's a confusing and difficult process, but I must continue. Sorry, Will. So, you know, this is Ben only focused on his own path to atonement here. Um, and you know, there is still hubris in action here. You know, it's confidence of one who's used to everything he sees being a tool just for him, which ends up becoming a weapon for everybody else. And, you know, this conversation between him and Will gets interrupted because uh, Wheeler shows up. So, you know, we don't actually get to hear Donna is, you know, Ben is Donna's biological father. We never hear that. And again, here it is just under the surface enough for us to all know what the answer is, but not enough to hear the answer. And, um, you know, hopefully... (laughs) You know, it's it's interesting because, you know, we have Lucy at the beginning of this where, like, she's just going to choose the best father for her offspring without necessarily waiting to know which um, which is the actual father. Um, <clears throat> so hopefully this um, this lesson that Ben is like, po- you know, possibly around to inadvertently teach her through, you know, keeping secrets for too long, you know, hopefully this helps Lucy decide to deal with her kids' parentage um, in a much more civil way. And, um, you know, all we're left with here is Will saying to Ben, you know, Ben, be careful, please. So in other words, what Will is actually saying is have empathy for the pain you may inflict on people outside of the view of your personal path, please. You know, even if Ben takes Will's advice, which, you know, he basically does up to a point um donna is already on the case now because of ben and um you know she'll confront him in episode 28 about her findings here where um you you know where in the attic she digs up her birth certificate with the empty father name and um you know her mom is um actually labeled on that birth certificate as Eileen Hayward, which, you know, may indicate behind the scenes continuity error, or it might indicate an in-universe infidelity uh, that, you know, she'd already married Will at the time, maybe. Um, And, you know, this is when Donna discovers no father listed, which, you know, pretty much seals the fate of her bringing Ben back into it. And, you know, it doesn't help that she sees the photos nearby it of her mom and dad with Ben. And, um, you know, he, he's, you know, doing the, the Nixon V's around them. So, you know, obviously this is like early to mid seventies. Um, and, um, I, I actually remember this scene with Donna being pretty compelling in 1995 when I saw it, but, you know, possibly more to do with the, uh, staging and the mood rather than the, um, rather than the actual thing of her trying to find her, her biological father. But anyway, following Ben again, um, you know, Ben, um, Ben's basically confronted with Wheeler at this point, basically saying, you know, basically learning that he's going to be left alone to run stop Ghostwood without his, um, without his role model near him, uh, without his mentor. And, um, you know, Wheeler basically says, Ben, I've got to go. They're gassing up the jet as we speak. And, uh, he says a friend of mine, he's more than a friend. He was a partner. He's been murdered. You know, besides being Audrey's new leading man, there are some interesting connections. Um, okay, so in Brazil, it um, it literally shares a border in some parts with Argentina, which could 
be easily tied into the black box that we see in season three that gets sucked into a uh, the shape of a silver pellet, basically. And um, also connecting to Buenos Aires, where Jeffries was in that scene in Fire Walk With Me. So um, a sudden murder down there on the other side of the border to that sort of uh, possible negative connection. Um, it could be its own Twin Peaks situation down there with Wheeler needing to be the protagonist, uh, just like Cooper is the protagonist here. So, you know, there, there's a running parallel to him and Cooper again, in a way. Um, not that they necessarily went that way. They just wanted to have a story that could tie him up uh, for a little while while they, um, you know, waited out um, a season three order when they could probably bring him back. But, you know, the show isn't concerned about those details anymore. And Ben isn't concerned about any more of those details either. You know, he basically says, but what about Stop Ghostwood? Um, And, you know, yeah. So this is, you know, when um, Wheeler basically says that he thinks that Ben can handle it without him. Um, But, you know, this is when we get Ben being vocally vulnerable with him, basically saying he's afraid that he's weak. So, you know, he can actually admit, you know, he might not be able to admit that to Audrey, but he's able to admit that to his male buddy, uh, Wheeler, who is his mentor. Um, And, you know, this is when, um, you know, Ben gives a moment of empathy toward Wheeler where he says, good luck on his way out. And, you know, he actually does do the right thing by Wheeler by giving that letter to Audrey uh, when she comes in. I mean, he doesn't do it right away because, you know, he still has his plans first. And, um, you know, Audrey's looking for Wheeler, but, you know, Ben's back on his own path again still. Um, you know, he never veers off. You know, he's very single-minded on you know, personal growth right now. And, um, you know, he pitches around being the spokeswoman for Stop Ghostwood, which actually is pretty smart to do. Um, asks her to sign up to, for Miss Twin Peaks to do it. Uh, you know, it's it's a smart way to get a platform locally to, um, you know, be, you know, be, um, you know, a spokesperson, you know, a spokesvoice for this, um, this cause of his. Um, but, you know, then she asks, where is John Justice Wheeler? And he does finally listen to her. He finally, not only does he hear her, he listens to her. And he says he left for the airport. Here's his letter. And, um, you know, then he lets her leave. So, you know, this is an empathy adjacent moment for him. You know, him being able to give up his own plan without getting an answer from her, which is tough for him to do, I think. And, you know, shifting over to just, you know, what is she feeling? What does she need here? This is when he gets the moment where he hears the hum and he spins around to confront whatever it must be around him. So, you know, he's he's riding that line, but, you know, he is growing. He's just kind of doing it at the same time <laughs> as he's like, you know, becoming a, t- a time bomb for the town around him, at least, you know, the family of the Haywards, which kind of um, runs, you know, right in line with, is there a possibility that love is not enough, which is my final question. So, um, yeah, it's like, is, is Ben's hope for, um, you know, personal growth enough to, um, you know, not mow down the Haywards and his own family in the process. Eh, I don't know. Um, but you know, like stuff like that being right in here in this episode, you know, it's like after, after the past few episodes focusing on 
growing love, you know, especially with, um, you know, Shelley and Gordon and Annie and Cooper, you know, things like that, you know, we're asked to wonder if it might be all for naught. And, um, sure, you know, Bobby and Shelley are heading in the right direction, but, you know, they end up getting divorced before, or, I mean, they, they end up getting separated at least by season three. Um, so, you know, that might not go so well. Um, you know, I already talked about what Ben does to the Haywards. Um, but, you know, like where we get this line from in the first place is from Briggs. Um, after being captured by Wyndham Earl, um, and, you know, after his few, I am not at liberty to, to divulge the information, you know, Garland, Garland says the, you know, answers the question, what do you fear most in the world with the possibility that love is not enough? You know, him saying that as, um, you know, Briggs fights against the darkness. That's his job. That's what his role in the Air Force is right now with listening post-alpha, uh, you know, according to Secret History. Um, and, you know, for here, too. I mean, he's kind of like the um, the um, worldly version of the Log Lady. You know, it's like those two are always kind of balancing each other out. And he's sort of on the science side in a way. Um, and, um, you know, he he does fight against the dark for and with love you know that's his like primary tool and sort of weapon against the dark um but you know his biggest fear is that that won't do it um you know he can only hope that love is the stronger of the two forces and you know there there's a lot of testing in this episode and the series in general but you know how strong is love so we see love you know, appearing to be at least as strong enough to begin rehabilitating Leo, which, you know, in seasons one and, you know, two, like up through the fact that, you know, he wakes up and like immediately tries to kill Shelly and Bobby, um, you know, that that's a that's a tall order to try to rehabilitate Leo, you know, and, and here, you know, we see him and, you know, we, we see that, you know, he's the one who like cleaned the wood off around the saw blade. Um, and, you know, he's like tidying up um, Earl's cabin while Earl pontificates. And, um, you know, th this kind of reminds me of the way he always says, you know, this is where we live, Shelley. You know, it's like he's always worried about a clean house, except now he's the one keeping things clean to his own standards. You know, it's like he's taking personal accountability for that sort of thing now that A, he's the victim, but B, he's like able to have empathy you know it's like you know maybe maybe he should take responsibility for himself and where he lives and you know because this is where he lives now he lives in the cabin um but you know while he's doing this and you know doing the cleaning he's he sees the playing card on the corkboard of shelly and he says shelly so um Earl says, very good, you remember. And, um, you know, then Earl docks her for modern views on marital fidelity. Um, but, you know, she's still fit for a queen. And um, then he asks Leo, point blank, you know, it's like, would you mourn her passing, Leo? I doubt it. You know, and then, you know, a little bit more pontificating. And then he says, Shelley wins Miss Twin Peaks. Shelley dies. Maybe you'd like to help. So he's only giving Leo credit for being who Leo was before he's like constantly shocked with all this electricity that's probably rewiring his brain into being empathetic. And, um, you know, this is the last straw for Leo. And he decides to shoot Earl with the shock remote. And, um, 
you know, this is something he picked up a little bit earlier. And, you know, Earl completely plays along, you know, feigning all this fear, you know, like, oh, don't do it, Leo. (laughs) And, uh, you know, then Leo gives himself a shock. And, you know, he's wondering, you know, it's like he's completely confused. You know, it's like the, if if you have a gun, if you have a thing with a button on it that like shoots something, um, you know, it might not be a signal to the collar around his neck. It might just be shooting that thing that shocks. So it takes Leo three times of shocking himself before he completely stops. And I don't even know if he understands what he was doing to himself with that. Um, and, you know. Um, Earl says, you know, it's like, poor Leo, we are all love's fools, more or less, but you will learn, as I have, the value of hate. And, um, you know, we kind of have the idea that um, love is making Leo a fool here. Like, he's not making the connections uh, of, you know, what that button actually is doing. You know, it's like, in in this way, you know, it's like, sure, Leo has empathy and he's smart that way, but he's dumber than he's ever been about, you know, like how the, you know, how the remote works, things like that. Um, yeah, I mean, love comes from empathy, but hate is where power alone, you know, the, the, unimpe- the unimpeded ambition and want comes from in, in the way that, um, Earl is thinking, you know, it's like you have to hate something in order to use something against it. Yeah, but I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe because Leo's previous mindset was from that hate perspective and now he's been inverted, maybe that's why he's still paying for it now. You know, it's like, sure, you can have empathy and you can um, have the room to change just like Ben has, except that, you know, Leo's just always been, you know, the arm of people like that, that, you know, he, he doesn't have that room anymore to, to make the change. Um, you know, Leo's only come to the love so late and possibly only because of the electricity, but, you know, all, all we get from, from Leo at this point in, in the, in the vein of too little, too late for him, um, you know, that love might not be enough for him. Um, you know, it's like Leo is just the horse's ass in the costume. And, you know, he's just scared of Earl all the time, even though he's helping Earl with, you know, against Major Briggs and everything. Yeah. How Leo might not be enough for Audrey and Wheeler um, is probably the most upfront expression of love, according to, you know, viewer expectations. And, you know, it might not be enough for them from a plot point of view. You know, Pete's asleep in his truck, it's dark out, and the plane takes off and wakes him, and he watches it go. And we're kind of wondering, it's like, oh, crap, did Audrey actually just leave the show with him right now? But, you know, we hear her heels on the, on the, what do you call it, the asphalt, probably. Um you know, walking up behind him and, um, you know, Pete and her are watching it together at that point. And, um, you know, Pete basically tries to cheer her up and, you know, it's like, he'll be back one day. And Audrey says, well, he promised to take me fishing and he never did. Love stinks. So she's starting to question love in a way here. And, um, you know, Pete shifts gears and says, oh, I I know what to do with this. And, you know, he has some tackle in the trunk and he says many cures for the broken heart, but none like a trout's leap in the moonlight. And he says, may I? And she says, you may. And um, 
you know, that, that makes me think, you know, fishing makes me think of catching the big fish that, um, you know, Lynch is fond of, and that he named his kind of, uh, um, self-help book of pointers after, <laughs> but, um, you know, th this is uh, a pretty straightforward issue here. You know, it's like, will their love be enough to last across such a distance of episodes and you know, actual physical distance? You know, it's like, will they be able to survive uh, while he's away? You know, the answer isn't there, but it's from the episode where, you know, love may not be enough. And then we have Cooper and Annie. And, um, you know, we have Cooper basically thinking about Annie during an investigate, you know, during his big hefty investigation against Earl, um, you know, after, okay, the, uh, he's in, he's in the, uh, the sheriff station with Harry and after name dropping the petroglyph and Briggs, Cooper basically looks out the blinds, you know, he's holding it open with his fingers and, um, you know, Harry asks him what he's thinking about, and Cooper just says, just thinking about Annie Blackburn. And, um, you know, Harry commends him on not usually having a mind that wanders. And, um, you know, this is when Cooper says, I've been feeling this way all day. I proceed as usual, my mind clear and focused. And suddenly, out of nowhere, I see her face and hear her voice. And, um, I mean, this basically in meditation um you know these are the thoughts that you typically push away as they entered so that you can remain focused and you know in twin peaks terms um you know having some somebody arrive like that um it, it's kind of like you know it, like it is and like it sounds you know it's like like it is is um you know, the thing that he's trying to be focused on, but like it sounds could be a little bit different. You know, it's like there are two different ways to, to be thinking. And, you know, it's like you want them both aligned, but, you know, sometimes it sounds like, uh, something that you might want, like, you know, seeing this woman again. Um, and, you know, Cooper continues and says, naturally, I try to redirect myself and, come back to the task at hand, but the image remains. Sometimes I actually feel dizzy. And, um, okay, the dreams are solidifying. So do tulpas in a way. You know, it reminds me of all the stuff from that article, Who's Annie, at 25 Years Later site that I'm going to continue to reference. Um, and, you know, like the, this, this force that Annie is, is kind of taking control of Dale's thoughts. Um, and, you know, Dale basically says my symptoms suggest the onset of malaria, which is, you know, kind of, you know, a, a sickness, which, you know, you could also say like a mental sickness is being out of balance. Um, but, you know, then Cooper says, but I've never felt better in my life. So is he cocooning because he feels safe to do so? And like, you know, uh, cocooning into this, this feeling of want, and of love and like all that side is growing out of balance um and yeah i mean this is when his hand shakes so you know there there's a certain sense to say that you know it's like this is all well and good for cooper but keep it in balance or it's going to you know lead to bad things kind of like how ben's only focused on his own personal growth rather than the world around him that his personal growth may affect um, 
<clears throat> and, um, you know, we got Annie basically admitting to the same kind of situation. Um, you know, she says something's troubling you when Cooper comes in later to the double R and she says, you know, would you like to talk about it? And Cooper says he's involved in a fairly complicated investigative investigation requiring my complete attention. Yet I spend most of my time thinking about you. And, um, <clears throat> And he responds saying that, you know, she's been seeing his face and eggs all morning. So it's been happening to her visually. And, um, you know, then she has faith in what they have. And um, I th I do say that they are a pretty good match. I still completely agree with that. And um, about, you know, why they're attracted to each other. Cooper says, you know, there are those who believe in a scientific basis for attraction. It's chemical or it's, yeah, it's chemical. And she says, is that what it is? And he just says, I don't know. And, uh, <laughs> then he says hard to comprehend without perspective. So he kind of understands where he is with this, but he's still going with it. And, um, you know, then she says, you know, I spent five years trying to comprehend it, uh, with the nervous laughter. And, um, it implies five years at the convent, which if uh, she went right after senior year when the boy, um, you know, got her into the state that made her want to attempt suicide, um, that makes her at minimum 23 years old right now. You know, 24, you know, 20, 23, 24 at the youngest. Um, so it's not as unreasonable of an age gap between them as other relationships currently happening. I'm looking at you, John justice Wheeler and Audrey Horn. Um, so, you know, there's that for the people that, you know, are looking at Kyle McLaughlin's age and, um, Heather Graham's real age of 21 at the time. So yeah, Audrey's playing up and, um, Dale Cooper's playing up as well, but not by too many years. Um, so, you know, like the, the most they have is like a 10 year age gap, which, you know, for 1991 standards is not that terrible. And also she's not a teenager. She's a middle twenties kind of lady, which, you know, is also in the favor of this. Um, but anyway, that's, that's me getting on the soapbox about, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not quite the gap that it might seem you know, just glancing at it. Uh, but anyway, um, Annie says, it's hard for me, but I have faith in you, in us, as I understand it. And, you know, then Cooper says, we're very much alike. And she says, it helps. And um, Cooper says, we think too much. And um, then Annie says, what we observe is not nature itself, but nature exposed to our method of questioning. And he says, Heisenberg, uh, because he's happy to catch a quote after she started off catching one of his. And, you know, they both giggle at this point. But, um, you know, what we observe is not nature itself, but our nature nature exposed to our method of questioning. That's that goes right along with how I've been talking about all these different frequencies that people are on and that, you know, like how you how you feel about things resonates on, you know, one of those frequencies more than others. And um, this fits right in with that and um, also fits right in with how Cooper's kind of out of balance with Annie, like the, the frequency that he's on with Annie being a little bit stronger than the others to probably both their detriments. But, you know, this conversation actually began with Cooper 
beginning by pushing Annie to sign up for Miss Twin Peaks. Um, so like, you know, he's trying to get her out of her, sh- out of her shell. Um, and you know, she's cleaning the counter with a crumpled up, uh, Miss Twin Peaks flyer. This is when he actually arrives there and says, you know, couldn't hurt to give it a shot. And, um, and Annie responds with maybe next year. And Cooper says, Annie, there's a whole world out there. Jump in, hear the other side, see the other side. And this is when she says St. Augustine. And, um, you know, then ask some coffee and Cooper just says, you bet. And, um, yeah, then, then they have that conversation. Um, and Annie chooses later at the double R to actually sign up for Miss Twin Peaks. Um, you know, she says, you know, why not hear the other side, see the other side. There's worse places to start than Miss Twin Peaks. It's like a fairy tale. And, um, you know, she says it while she's in the setting where Miss Twin Peaks will happen. So she can kind of visualize it. Um, and, you know, along with, you know, moving with the dance that she's in with Cooper. And uh, then she admits feelings. And bravery is basically with her at this point. So she says it. You know, she she is brave and she reaches out and does this thing that Cooper suggests for her. And um, this is when Cooper says, and you're the queen, which cues up the giant and um yeah she's not actually choosing to be a pawn in a game already set between earl and cooper she's choosing to experience the world and to have a physical relationship with cooper but is that going to be strong enough for her to make it through to the other side um yeah, it depends on what kind of other side you're talking about. Is it a euphemism for death or the red room? You know, then absolutely. Otherwise, big question marks all over the place. Um, but yeah, speaking about that red room, I mean the red room. Good lord, that roadhouse scene. Um, it's all set up for the pageant. Lots of people are dancing to saxophone and piano music, and um. Annie is in blue at the bar and, you know, in comes Dale who notices her immediately and he holds out her, his hand for her. And, you know, she not, you know, she shakes her head. No. And there's no words being used between them. It's just physical, physical interaction. And it's very cool. Actually. I like how they're doing this sort of, you know, because then he holds his hand back, he holds his hands back behind him. And, um, yeah, then just as a little cute come here gesture. And, um, you know, then she finally does. I, I really like how they are together. Um, and, you know, she's not prepared for this kind of, um, you know, normal kind of behavior between two people. Um, and, you know, he says, just think of it as a walking embrace. Two people stepping as one would step. Follow me. And then Annie corrects or like, you know, like, adds her own way of thinking about it, which is we'll follow each other. So it's an illustration of how their slightly differing philosophies kind of work. You know, it's like he wants her to follow him and she says, we'll follow each other, um, which he goes with. And, you know, she, she, um, she is dancing with him and she blames her dancing ability on genetic memory of her parents dancing the Lindy, uh, so, you know, she's not really, uh, <laughs> you know, all the way there yet. But then she starts the kissing with him and you know, she says, I want more than your kisses. And, you know, he says, for instance, and uh, she says, I want 
But then this is when the mayor interrupts, first of all, and saying, you know, is this thing on? You know, technical difficulties interrupting him as they put the music back on. And, you know, this leaves room for Annie to continue. Except this time, her eyes are locked on to that microphone uh, or the area where the the mayor would be. And it's like she's still dancing with Cooper, but she's looking exactly away from him. Um, you know, the the opposite of where Cooper actually is. So it's almost like, you know, it's like in a way it could be her being bashful. But in another way, it's almost like she's like speaking to where the giant is. Um and she says, what I mean is, I understand why you hesitate, why you treat me with care. The convent evokes the image of helpless women, fearful of the thought of any emotion other than those derived from scripture and prayer. But when you hold me, when we kiss, still looking away from him at this point, you know, is she distancing on purpose or, you know, she's like stealing her bravery? Um, uh, she says, I feel safe and eager. And, um, you know, what is she looking at? You know, it's it's really distracting as a viewer. Um, but then she says, and I'm not afraid of anything that you make me feel. And now she turns to him. So, like, now that she's it, she says out loud that she's not afraid, then she can look at him. Um, so, you know, she looks at him about, you know, any, how anything that you make me feel or want. And then there's more kissing, and then there's the mayor interruption again. And, um, <clears throat> you know, th there's the weird, potentially supernatural undertones of her looking away that long. Um, but there's also the fact that this is good for both of them. You know, it's like Cooper's heart has been locked up for too long, and, um, you know, so has hers in a lot of ways. And, you know, it's like it's good for them to want to love. You know, the problem basically comes from Cooper ignoring the spooky intuition signs when around her. You know, it's like when they kiss at the double R, um, you know, when when um, when they first have the conversation where, you know, they're noticing St. Augustine, Augustine and Heisenberg quotes, um, you know, the they begin to kiss there too. And the camera backs away from them. And, you know, that, that drone and the score kicks in and it starts feeling, um, kind of tricky. You know, it's like Annie says, maybe we should go bowling. And then Cooper says, how about dancing? And she says, I don't know how. Um, and you know, the, uh, the planning of their date becomes really ominous. And, you know, this is obviously where the giant is going to give them a warning too. So, um, you know, it's like maybe it's already kind of ominous that like maybe they shouldn't even be doing this. Um, you know, it seems destined for failure of some kind. You know, Cooper basically just says, I'll teach you. It's easy. And, you know, it's like I'm patriarchy. <laughs> but, you know, then he stands up and, uh, you know, she says when and he says tonight and they kiss. It snaps back to a close-up here, and they're still kissing. And, um, you know, Cooper breaks to kind of look around to see if they can continue uninterrupted. Like, do they have the room for this kiss? And, um, you know, this is when, you know, the sound of a plate breaks. And um, down at Annie's feet, there's a bin with a bunch of dishes, you know, pushed off the counter probably uh, by them, I would assume. And, um, you know, then we get a close up on one of the dishes and there's this slow motion of the syrup dripping from a bowl um, while this lodgy drone soundtrack plays. And, um, 
you know, it's like that should possibly be warning number one that maybe they should have enough intuition to say, maybe we shouldn't go there. And, um, you know, then of course, like I already said, you know, Cooper's spotlighted. He holds eye contact with where the giant is. Um, but it's almost like he's not able to see it. You know, it's like, you know, it, it reminds me of, um, uh, Lieutenant Cynthia Knox in in um, one of the parts in season three where she's on the phone with her superior officer talking about the case of Major Briggs. Um, and um, there's a woodsman walking behind her slowly. And you wonder if she's ever going to see it or even feel it. And like she doesn't even seem to feel it because she doesn't have intuition for this kind of stuff. But, you know, she never sees it. And it just keeps on walking right past her because it's on a completely different frequency. So Cooper being able to almost feel like something is happening, like time is slowing down and pulling him out. You know, it's like he almost feels the light on his uh, the, the spotlight on his face and he's looking for something, but he just can't acknowledge it. It's like he's too far off in this cocoon with him and Annie where they're both learning to love again and heal themselves in this frequency that's like a universe of two you know then you know time starts back up and the very first thing that he does is he turns his head back and receives annie's kiss and um you know that would wipe away any chance of him being able to acknowledge that that happened um and you know not even the mayor saying there's something wrong is jogging his memory that something just happened um you know will their love be enough to grow themselves into better people? Maybe. Uh, will it be enough to overcome the coming darkness? Um, you know, if there was a season three in 1991, 1992 television season, I would hope so. But right now, they're seemingly aligned more with their wants than being balanced. And, um, I mean, okay, if I had to hypothesize, um, I always had terrible vibes that, um, you know, what would have been Doppelcooper would kill Annie before Briggs and the gang would be able to liberate Goodale from the lodge. You know, it's like that that's just the way repetitions happen in Twin Peaks. And I would be terrified to see that. But, you know, I, I think, um, you know, that that just the way that I thought of that in a plot centric kind of way. I mean, I don't think their love has a chance in this show because it's a TV show where Dale is the protagonist rather than a side character. You know, it's like Ed and Norma have half a chance that they might actually have a successful relationship. But, you know, Cooper's in a show in 1991 where there are plot devices that are needed. And, um, you know, romance needs to also be attached to his plot rather than his own personal growth. Um, you know, tr- try as I might to, to look at it from, you know, their, their own personal perspectives of like trying to, you know, open their hearts to love. Um, you know, it's like, I just can't give them a good chance to make it out of this, you know, had, had, had the show kept going. Um, you know, it's like, I, for, I don't, you know, for them as good as a chance that they might actually have as good of a fit that they might be. I don't think that love could be enough for them. Um, 
but you know, we'll look at it more as we go. Um, right now I'm just going to stop this episode because we're basically out of, uh, episode 27. So you have been listening to the blue rose task force podcast, a production of ruminations radio network and 25 YL radio. If you resonate with what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate and review our show. And we would love to connect with you on Twitter at blue rose TF pod on counter social at blue rose task force podcast and Instagram and Facebook at blue rose task force. You can find me at JPB underscore Little Green on Twitter and John underscore The underscore Peaky on Instagram. Visit Ruminations Radio Network for additional great shows such as Oh God It Hurts and Tony's Tall Tales. And join all of all the hosts from Ruminations Radio Network, myself included, on the Discord channel Ruminations Radio Cafe. Find any number of classic 25YL Twin Peaks articles, including my full Electricity Nexus column at 25YearsLaterSide.com and join us on Discord at 25YL, a Twin Peaks server. If you want to be part of our next mailbag episode, send any comments, questions, or feedback to Blue Rose Task Force Podcast at, gmail, at gmail.com. And we'll see you next time as we look into the Twin Peaks trading cards from Star Picks. Until then, listeners, I'll see you in my dreams. And it's a mystery. It's a mystery. I wish you the best of luck. It's a way to kind of deepen and expand. Oh, the sun is shining.